the story is told of a zoo that was noted for their great collection of a variety of different animals. Well, one day the gorilla died. So to keep up the appearance that this zoo had a full array of animals, the zookeeper, he decided to hire a man to wear a gorilla suit to fill in for the dead animal. Well, try as he could, this man, he just, he just didn't know how to act like a gorilla very well. In fact, his first day on the job, you know, he's got the mask on, he's got the suit on, he's, he's trying to be convincing that he's a gorilla, but as he's doing so, he's not paying very close attention, and he gets really close to the edge of the enclosure, so close that he actually trips and falls down into the lion exhibit. Well, as you can imagine, he begins to scream, convinced his life is over. But it is until the lion speaks to him <laughs> and says, keep quiet or you'll get us both fired. <laughs> now, I don't know if that's a true story or not. It's probably not. But what I do know is that story perfectly illustrates the definition of the word hypocrite. The word hypocrite, as some of you might know, it comes from the world of Greek drama. It was used to describe the mask that actors would wear to play their parts. Just like that man wore a mask and a gorilla suit to play the role of a gorilla. You see, a hypocrite is someone who wears a mask. To put it another way, a hypocrite is someone who lives contrary to his or her stated beliefs. And the truth is, no one likes a hypocrite, do they? I know I don't. Do you? Do you? Of course not. In fact, people actually despise hypocrites. In fact, this is often one of the major reasons why people don't go to church. One common charge that is leveled against Christians is that the church is just a house full of what? Hypocrites, right? They live contrary to their stated beliefs. I mean, even if you aren't a Christian here this morning, even if you haven't attended church that often, you know that Christians are to live good, moral, and upright lives, right? I'm not giving you any new information here. Christians are not to be hypocrites, but rather they are to walk in step with their stated beliefs and do good and to be kind to others. But here's the question I want us to consider this, this Sunday before Christmas, this, this Christmas morning. That is this, and that is, why? Why should Christians strive to live good, moral, and upright lives? Let me just get a little bit more practical. Why should you pray? Why should you serve in the church? Why should you volunteer your time and energy at local charities? Why should you give of your money and resources 
to charities. Why should you, why should Christians do good things? It's an important question, isn't it? In fact, it's so important that the Lord Jesus Christ, he addressed this very issue in his Sermon on the Mount. Did you know that in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, did you know that in that sermon, Jesus compares and contrasts two groups of people? Did you know this? But here's the thing. It's not that one group is bad and the other is good. No, as Jesus makes clear, both groups are very moral. Both pray. Both fast. Both give to the poor. Both attend church and follow the Ten Commandments. In fact, what's most intriguing about these two groups is that they're almost identical. But here's the kicker. At the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, you know what Jesus says? Jesus clearly teaches that only one group will enter the kingdom of God. Keep in mind, both groups are moral. Both groups are doing good things. Both groups are righteous. But only one, Jesus says, will enter the kingdom of God. So what's the difference? You know what the difference is between the two groups? It's the reason why they are doing the good things. And as Jesus makes clear, one reason leads to life. Another reason leads to death. I mean, think about how in the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has groups of two, right? He has, talks about two paths. He talks about two trees. He talks about two foundations. One leads to life. The other leads to death and destruction. So let me ask the question again. Why should you live a good, moral, and upright life? Why should your life be marked by righteousness? Why should you do good deeds? Well, I believe our passage this morning answers that very question. Turn with me in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. That's page 998 in that paperback Bible in the seat in front of you. And as you're turning there, let me give you the context. The book of Titus is a short New Testament letter written by the Apostle Paul. And one of the themes... Paul repeatedly stresses, he continues to hammer home in this short four-chapter book, is that Christians are to live righteous lives. In fact, in Titus chapter 2, 1 through 10, Paul clearly spells out what that ought to look like. Well, this morning what we're going to do is we're going to give attention to the following section. Verses 11 through 15. For in this following section, we learn why Christians are to do that. In this section, we get the answer as to why Christians are to live good, moral, and upright lives. And as you're about to see, the answer 
has everything to do with Christmas. So follow along with me in your copy of God's Word as I read Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. The Apostle Paul writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He writes this. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness in worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. Why? To redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are what? What's that word? Zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is God's word, amen? Amen. You know, people often say that Christmas time, it's the most wonderful time of the year, right? You guys, anyone agree with that? That's the most wonderful time of the year? Some of you? But can I ask, how many of you find it actually to be the busiest time of the year? Any, any hands there? In fact, has this ever happened to you? Someone comes up to you and says, hey, how are you doing? And you reply by saying, busy? Have you ever said that before? I've been saying that since October, it seems like, right? But can I ask, are you truly that busy? Several years ago, the global marketing firm Havis Worldwide wanted to know just how busy people are. You know what they did? They conducted a survey, and it was quite extensive. They surveyed over 10,000 adults across 28 countries to see if people are indeed busy. And you know what they discovered? They discovered that the majority of people lie about how busy they are. The vast majority of people lie about how busy they are. And you know why they lie? This was the most fascinating thing about the report. They lie. The reason why they lie to being perceived as being busy is because they believe telling people you're busy, it communicates that you are important. They want others to think well of them. But you know what? I, I, think, I think if we take a moment and observe what's happening in our culture and our society at large, if we just take a moment, I think we will quickly see that we as a society, we just don't want to be perceived as being busy. No, you know what we really want? What I think what we really want? What we really want 
is we want to be perceived as being righteous. I recently read an article by a pastor, and he made the astute observation that we are witnessing the rise of an ugly self-righteousness. And exhibit A, virtue signaling. Our culture is rife with virtue signaling, is it not? Just go on social media. Everyone wants the world to know how good, moral, and righteous they are. Indeed, virtue signaling has replaced actual virtue. <laughs> Today, a good person is simply someone who believes in the right causes, likes the right posts, and puts the right sign in their front yard. Never mind their personal morality. Never mind their own actions. No, just look at what causes they support and are vocal about. We want to be seen and perceived as righteous. And friend, this is a tale as old as time. Um, Kevin Swanson is a pastor, author, and host of the Generations Radio broadcast. And in one of his books, he insightfully points out that throughout human history, cultures have always come up with their own standard of righteousness, a righteousness that people need to live up to. So for example, in 54 BC, Celtic Druids approved and practiced wide-scale human sacrifice but they had no tolerance for warfare. You, you could sacrifice another human, but if you engaged in warfare, you were looked down upon. They had their own standard of righteousness, one that the people were to live up to, and we see the same thing today, do we not? Indeed, we have people crying out, wanting to be seen and perceived as righteous, we all have this desire. Yet you know what our problem is, friend? Our problem is we are looking to the wrong judge to get that declaration. You see, our problem is we seek such approval from the court of public opinion rather than the ultimate judge of the universe, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? Notice what Paul writes in the passage I just read. Paul clearly teaches that Christians are to live godly lives. They're to be, he uses the word, zealous for good deeds. Yet why are they to live this way? Notice it is not so that they would be perceived as righteous by others, but because they've been declared righteous through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is to say it's because of God's grace that Christians are to live godly lives. And this, I want to argue, is the main point the Apostle Paul is trying to get a home, drive home in our text this morning. Because of God's grace, Christians must live godly lives. And friend, this, I want to say, is the difference between the two groups of people Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. One group of people are doing the good works because of the grace they've received from God. They live righteous lives, not to earn God's favor, but because they have it in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
They live godly lives because the grace shown to them. The other group, though, the other group does good deeds, not because of God's grace, but so as to be perceived as righteous by others. You see, friend, for you to be saved, for you to be accepted by God, you need two things. You need both the forgiveness of your sins, but that's not all. You not only need the forgiveness of your sins, but you also need the presence of perfect law-keeping righteousness according to God's standard. God demands both for you to be welcomed into his eternal kingdom. And I got bad news for you. These are two things you are completely unable to obtain as a sinner. Yet by God's grace, these are precisely the two things God gives us in Jesus Christ. In Jesus, our sins not only forgiven, but as Paul points out, God also, notice what he says there in verse 14, God also purifies us. That is to say, he declares us as righteous in his sight because of the perfect righteousness of Jesus. By faith in Jesus, his perfect law-keeping life is credited to our account, and this is all by grace. Paul here is alluding to it, but it's explicitly taught elsewhere in the New Testament, in Romans, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The righteousness, that that knowledge, that declaration that you are made right, God gives that through faith in Jesus Christ because he credits Jesus' righteousness to our account. And this is all by grace. And what I want to do this morning is show you just how foundational God's grace is to Christian living. As many commentators have pointed out, this passage, verses 11 through 14, it constitutes one sentence with grace standing as its subject. And there are three important truths the Apostle Paul highlights concerning God's grace. Indeed, this passage gives three reasons why God's grace ought to produce godly living in the life of the Christian. Here's the first thing we learn. Notice, this text teaches that God's grace saves Look at verse 11. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Recently, I was uh, talking with someone, and uh, she found out I was a pastor. I try to avoid that as much as I can when I meet somebody. I ask them questions about themselves, but sooner or later they say, So, what do you do for a living? And I have to say, I'm a pastor. And in that moment, one or two things are going to happen. <laughs> Either the conversation is going to end immediately <laughs> or it's going to keep going. And in this situation, it kept going. This, this woman, the moment I said I was a pastor, her eyes got bright. She says, oh, really? She's like, I am a very, very spiritual person. And then she said, but I'm not religious. In fact, she was very quick to point out that she's not into organized religion or the church or she's not really even into the Bible for that matter. But she definitely believes there's a God. She told me, I believe there's a God. And with confidence, she told me, and God speaks to me and connects with me. Well, I'm not one to pass up on conversations like this. 
And I could tell she really wanted to talk about spiritual things. So after hearing her talk for a while and asking her some clarifying questions, I then said, can I, can I ask you one more question? And she said, sure. I said, you told me you believe in God, but can I, but can I ask you, how do you know for sure that God exists? How do you know that there is, in fact, a God? You know what she said? After a really long pause, she looked at me and she said, I don't know. In fact, how would you answer that question? If someone came up to you and said, how do you know there is a God, what would you say? You look up in the sky? For example, in, in 1961, a Russian cosmonaut returned from space and reported that he didn't find God. The cosmonaut, he went up into space. He said he looked around. He couldn't find God. So when he came back to Earth, he says, there is no God. I went up to space. I looked around. Couldn't find him. This was in 1961. C.S. Lewis was living at that time. You know, he said he responded to the, to the Russian cosmonaut's claim with this. He said, that's like Hamlet going into the attic of his castle looking for Shakespeare, not finding him there. But Lewis is making a very important point. Lewis's point was that if there were a God, he wouldn't be another object in the universe we could put in a lab and analyze. Instead, he would relate to us the way a playwright relates to the characters in his play. We, the characters, might be able to know quite a lot about the playwright, but only to the degree that the author chooses to put information about himself into the play. In other words, the playwright can only be known through personal revelation. And friend, that's exactly what God has done in Jesus Christ. Notice what Paul writes in the opening verses, the opening line of these verses I just read. He writes that the grace of God has what? Appeared. Paul here is referring to Jesus Christ, and this is consistent with the rest of Scripture. Consider what we see in John chapter 1. John writes, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the, of the only Son from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. When Paul writes that the grace of God has appeared, he's referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, we can know there is a God because he wrote himself into our story when Jesus Christ was born in a manger 2,000 years ago, the very thing we celebrate this time of year. In Jesus, God took on human flesh, and this is the incredible claim of Christmas. Friend, please look at me. There was a real Jesus of Nazareth who really walked this earth, who claimed to be the Son of God and proved he was the Son of God from his resurrection from the dead. We can know there is a God because God wrote himself into history in Jesus Christ. And what this verse makes clear and praise the Lord for this is that in Jesus, salvation has come to who? All people, you know who that is? That's you. That's me. Friend, if you're wondering if your good works are enough to gain you entrance into heaven, into God's kingdom, I have some good news for you. The answer is no. 
They are not. They are insufficient. Furthermore, not only have you not done enough good works, but your sin has earned you something, and that is death and eternal separation from God and hell. This is why you need the grace that has appeared 2,000 years ago. This is why you need Jesus Christ. Because the good news of the Bible is that Jesus Christ lived the perfect, law-keeping, righteous life you have failed to live. Then he went to the cross to die in your place to satisfy the judgment owed you for your sin. Then three days after his crucifixion, Jesus rose from the dead, proving to be who he claimed to be, the Son of God. And the incredible offer of the Bible is that you can be fully forgiven of your sin, fully accepted by God, declared righteous in his sight, and live forever with God in heaven simply by faith. You know what you call that, that offer? Grace. Instead of getting what you deserve for your life of sin, for those who place their faith in Jesus, they receive salvation and the hope of eternal life. What glorious news. Friend, have you done that? Has there been a moment in your life when you've understood your sin, feeling the weight of its severity and the judgment it brings, and instead of looking to your own righteousness, or instead of wanting to be perceived as righteousness, instead of trusting your own righteousness, you instead go all in on the righteousness of another, the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting that his death was sufficient to forgive you of your sin and by his resurrection completely justify you so that by faith you can be saved. Friend, have you done that? Has there been a moment in time when you've put your trust in him? Oh, let not another moment pass. Tomorrow is not promised. Let today be the day of salvation for you. So first, God's grace saves, but then notice God's grace also teaches. Look at what Paul writes. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And notice the next word, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. God's grace saves and it teaches. Last week, I don't know if you saw this or not, but on CBS News, CBS News reported that NASA has developed a telescope that can look back in time to the moment light first appeared. You see this? They claim the new James Webb Telescope, which is supposedly 100 times more powerful than the Hubble Telescope. Get all this. We'll be able to look back in time to the moment light first appeared. Now, 
I don't know how that, that's even possible, okay? Maybe some of you engineers can figure it out. I don't know how that's even possible. Yet I do know this, that whenever they begin to look, if it is indeed legit, their eyes will be overcome by a light that appeared 2,000 years ago, and that is the birth of Jesus. As the Bible makes clear, a light has shone into our darkness. The grace of God has appeared and has come in Jesus Christ. And what this passage teaches is that this grace, this light of grace that has come into our world, it actually teaches us. That is, the grace of Christ just doesn't save us, but also trains us. And, like all good preachers, God's grace teaches us three things, three points. Notice this. First, God's grace teaches us to deny, to renounce or deny ungodly and worldly desires, be it anger, lust, or envy. Notice, Paul did not say God's grace teaches us to avoid ungodliness and worldly desires. No, he said to deny. God's grace, the same grace that saves us, also teaches us to say no to sin. And if I could just drill down here for a moment, I have no doubt that perhaps in a room this size with this many people, someone here might be considering giving way to a worldly desire. Perhaps someone is seriously considering leaving his or her spouse for another person. Or perhaps someone else is on the verge of giving in to sexual pressure with a boyfriend or girlfriend. Or perhaps there's someone else who's being tempted to act in an ungodly way so as to disrupt the unity of this church. But friend, in this very moment, God's grace, the grace that has appeared in Jesus Christ, the same sovereign grace that has saved you, it's now telling you from God's word, no. No, it's instructing you to deny these things. I think all of us this morning, we need to ask ourselves, have we lost the ability to say no to ungodliness? Or do we justify our sinful actions by saying, well, you know, that's just my personality. You know, I'm kind of a gossip, or I'm just stubborn, or I'm just very opinionated. Honestly, I talk, I talk to some Christians and they speak of their sin like it's an endearing quality. Oh, I, I just always tend to get angry like that. Or I'm, I'm just such a worrier. Friend, God's grace did not redeem you from sin and death so that you might continue to live a life of sin. No, he redeemed you so that you would renounce sin and instead live an upright and godly life for him in this present age. And notice that's the second thing God's grace teaches us. It teaches us how to live. 
It just doesn't leave, leave us with a list of things we shouldn't do. But notice what he says there. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Now, you might be wondering, okay, Aaron, what does that practically look like? What does it practically look like to live an upright and godly life in this present age? You want to know what it looks like? Read the first 10 verses of chapter 2. The section just before this one. For Paul in those verses spells out in greater detail what he's referring to when he says to live an upright and godly life. But friend, the point I'm wanting to drive home here is God's grace is not a license to sin. God's grace is instead a reason to deny sin and live a righteous life. This is why it has always bothered me how some Christians get defensive when another Christian, a fellow Christian, encourages them to live a righteous life or to follow God's commands. You can't tell me to live that way. You can't tell me what you look. We're under grace. We're not under law. Don't tell me how to live a righteous life. Don't tell me to live a righteous life. Really? Because that's not what our text says this morning. Grace does not say, live however you want. Grace specifically says, live righteously and godly in this present age. And then third, God's grace teaches us to be, wait, patiently, for the Lord. Notice how verse 13 and verse 11 are parallel based on the repetition of the word appeared. God's grace appeared at the art incarnation, Christmas, and God's glory will appear at the second coming of Jesus Christ. And it's this second appearing that we fix our hope on for when Christ comes again, our faith shall be sight and we'll see our Savior face to face and oh, what a day of rejoicing that will be. Amen. But the last thing I want to draw your attention to is God grace is God's grace saves, it teaches us, and the last thing, it motivates. Look at verses 14 and following. He says, referring to Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. On a February 2nd, 2014, the Seattle Seahawks won their first and only Super Bowl. And as some of you might know, Seattle Seahawks fans have gotten quite the reputation in the NFL as being some of the loudest fans there are. In fact, they're often referred to as the 12th man. Right? Well, on the day of the NFC Championship game of that year, the year that they won the Super Bowl, when the Seattle Seahawks played the San Francisco 49ers, Fox Sports conducted an experiment. Fox wanted to see just how loud Seahawks fans really are. Do you know what they did? They invited 10 of the biggest Seahawks fans into a room with a large TV to watch the game. And a representative from Fox told them that they had an opportunity to win and earn $5,000. All they had to do was watch the NFC Championship game in complete silence. 
They could jump. They could wave their hands. They could move their body any way they wanted. But they could not say a word. No sound. No words could come out of their mouth. Well, as some of you might remember, it was an exceptionally close game. In fact, with only seconds left in the game, and the 49ers marching down the field, looking like they're going to score, the Seahawks intercepted a pass, sealing their victory. And in that moment, you know what those 10 guys did? They screamed and shouted for joy. Now think about this. They willfully gave up $5,000 just so they could express with their lips their great zeal for their team. Is there anything in your life you are so zealous and excited about that someone couldn't even pay you $5,000 to keep silent about it? Faith, on the football field of life, Jesus accomplished the greatest victory the world has ever known. For what did he do? He defeated sin and death. And in so doing, Christian, please hear me, he redeemed your sinful soul and purified you to be his own. Christian, how can we keep silent about such good news? Indeed, how can we stand still? Notice the connection Paul makes here. He teaches that because Christ has redeemed you by his grace, making you his own possession, that should motivate you to be zealous for good deeds. Can I ask, what are you zealous for? College football? NFL football? Shopping? Gardening? Please hear me, none of those things are bad. But for the person who has been saved by God's grace, the grace that has appeared, that entered into our world 2,000 years ago in Jesus Christ, for the person who has been saved by God's grace, we are to have a zeal for good works. You know what's a good work? Forgiving those who sinned against you. Not giving way to bitterness is a good work. Forsaking pride and counting others as more important than you is a good work. Sacrificing and serving in the church is a good work. Christian, are you zealous to do these good works? Faith, you are to live a godly life, not to earn God's salvation, but because you have it by faith alone in Christ alone. 
nor are you to live a godly life in order to be perceived as righteous. No, we are to live righteous lives because God's grace that has saved us, teaches us, and motivates us. And this Christmas season, as we sing about the dawn of redeeming grace, I pray that we as a church will live in light of it. Amen? Let's pray.